Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Jim Thompson here, kind of live from Auditorium 2. If you're here today with us, I think that's kind of illegal. But if you're watching from home, thank you very much for tuning in. We kind of hope that you're used to church at home by now. I love, love the idea that we're all kind of doing this, most of us at the same time together on a Sunday morning, even though we're spread out throughout the upstate. It's a really beautiful thought to me, but I also hope that there's like a a hopeful discomfort to it as we look forward to gathering again together in person, incarnate as God's people, and and we can't wait for that uh, whenever it will come. But today, thank you for joining us online, and if you have stumbled upon us uh, via YouTube or Facebook or whatever, we hope that our times of worship um, point you to Jesus and to the life that he offers. Speaking of Jesus, as we like to do, you may know that there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Bible. Each one was written by someone different and to someone different, and with all four of them, we get an incredible picture of who Jesus is. And for the past seven or eight months, we have been studying our way through the most unique of these four biographies, the gospel according to John. And the other three, <clears throat> the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often called the synoptic gospels because they share a lot of the same material. But John's gospel was written about a generation or so later and includes a very special portrait of Jesus. Also, lucky for us, John tells us the very specific purpose of his entire account. At the end of John's gospel, he writes, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So John wants his readers, and that includes me and you, to believe. And that believing is not just like an emotional or an intellectual or quote-unquote spiritual move. This believing is a trusting with all of life. It means to swear total allegiance to Jesus. John wants us to believe and act like it's true that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God's son. And that means that he's the Messiah and that he's the true king of the world. Like you're not the king, I'm not the king, Jesus is the king. And believing means acting like that. God's purpose and God's agenda are most clear in him. And God wants us to trust that by following Jesus, and that's what John wants as well as he writes. And so that's what we've been trying to do and trying to think about as we've been studying our way through John. And so if you have a Bible near you, or maybe you need to go get one from another room, we will be in John chapter 12 this morning, and we would love for you to follow along in your copy of the scripture. So go ahead and open that up on your device or in your actual paperback Bible, like I've got here, and we'll be there in a few minutes, John chapter 12. 12. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to think that I am an efficient person, right? That's what I think that I am. I'm a one on the Enneagram. I get the feeling that somehow most of us like to think that about ourselves, that we're efficient. Now, I I could be wrong. Maybe you just think that you are Olympic at being an undisciplined couch bum. I certainly hope that's not the case. But uh, I do think that the older you get, you start to find like grooves of efficiency that work for you. Or at least we convince ourselves that we're being more resourceful and thoughtful and economic 
at how we go about life. I'm reading a book right now that's helping me rethink a lot of this stuff. It's one of the best books I've read in the past uh, few years. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Right there, I've got a picture of it for you. John Mark is a pastor in Portland. He's friends with the guys from the Bible Project, and I can't commend this book to you highly enough. It's hope-giving, it's convicting, it's practical. And even when I find myself uh, disagreeing with John Mark, it's like he's a math teacher that's making me show my work, like I better have a good reason why. And his whole point in the book is that Jesus says, <clears throat> Jesus says, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And that everything in our Western world hurriedly pushes against that. Basically, his thesis is that followers of Jesus need to rework their definitions of efficiency. And he talks about how our speed of life is affecting our brains, our bodies, and our souls, and that we need to return to ideas like Sabbath and solitude if we're going to live in the rest that Jesus wants for us. He has a chapter called A Brief History of Speed, and he even talks about how people lost their minds when the sundial was invented in 200 BC. The sundial, right? People thought that their days were now going to be hacked up into pieces with this crazy new technology. And it's the opposite for us today. For us, speed is like a virtue sometimes. But it doesn't seem to be so in the teachings of Jesus. And so John Mark is really helping me <clears throat> think about this even in little tiny practical ways. For example, a group of friends and I this past week pretty much had a contest to see who could delete the most apps off of their phone. I don't know if this is shameful for you. I think I deleted 25 apps and then we cleared all of our screens on our, our, our phones and we put the remaining apps into just four folders and I know that it sounds trivial, but I, I can legit feel like a mental freedom or something and it, and it makes me feel more efficient. Now, when you do start to think about efficiency, a key component in all of this is knowing that there is both task-oriented efficiency and people-oriented efficiency. Like, like we were made for relationships. We are not human doings. We are human beings with each other. But at the same time, like stuff has to get done. We have to be mindful of our responsibilities. And true efficiency is knowing which one of those is more important at any given time, tasks or people? Especially because sometimes what might be relationally efficient might not be task efficient, and it takes wisdom and patience to juggle this and know the balance. And this leads to what I think is a more Christian term, <clears throat> a more Christian term for all this, and that is the word stewardship. Stewardship is like, gospel efficiency that views all of life as a gift. Being a steward is not about being an owner. We like to talk about what we own and what we have. God owns it, though, if, if you read Scripture. And what he has given to us, whether it's a lot or a little, we're called to generously use it for him and for his glory to put the gospel on display, and that's, that is stewardship. <coughs> now, sadly... <coughs> The way that the American dream talks about efficiency is that your pursuit of happiness is front and center. It's the most important thing in the whole world. And one of the, 
ways that the Bible talks about efficiency is about giving away your time and your money and your resources and your energy and all of your life for Jesus' sake because the gospel is the most important thing in the world. And if you're 100% honest, that doesn't, that doesn't sound very efficient to us because not only do many of us worship at the idol of work, but we also think we need a 12th pair of shoes, a 10th pair of jeans, an extra two or three of this just in case. We need, we need hey, you got to have a bigger TV <clears throat> than the one that works just fine. You need a newer car than the one that's not broken, the iPhone that's not out yet, even though yours is less than a year old. Because those things promise us an elevated sense of supposed efficiency. And we've been tricked into believing that consuming things that are quote unquote efficient will bring us happiness. A new purse, a new boat, a new house, a new wardrobe, a new swimming pool, a new computer. And by all means, don't forget to renew the gym membership that you literally only used three days last year. And if we have so much stuff, we might lose sight of our ongoing need for God. And that means that our faith will be only verbal and not visceral. But on, on the other hand, <clears throat> listen to Jesus. Just listen to him talk. Luke 12, life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Acts 20, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew 6, you can't serve both God and money. Also, Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Or Matthew 19, to the rich young ruler, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And the New Testament keeps going. <clears throat> Acts chapter two, they sold all of their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. First Timothy 6, the love of the money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we'll let Jesus finish us out here. And don't forget, if you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Matthew 19, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, be honest, don't fake being spiritual here. These ideas are utterly contrary to how we naturally think about efficiency in our lives, especially when it comes to money. But as followers of Jesus, we're not first and foremost called to be democratic capitalists. We're not called to be hoarders and collectors and consumers of stuff just to make life more comfortable. We're called to be stewards, and that is a different framework altogether. Also, side note, maybe you've lost or your job has been lessened because of coronavirus, and if that's you, I'm, I'm so very sorry. Please go to our website and click the I Need Help button. That's such a tough and impossible spot to be in, and we want to come around you, and we hope that you are trusting God for his provision. But still, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're called to be stewards in plenty and in lack, and it's tough no matter what. Sometimes it's like, we don't actually believe the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. <clears throat> In his book on hurry, John Mark Comer, John Mark Comer cites and then 
riffs on an old Dallas Willard quote. Willard says, the cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of non-discipleship is higher. What he means is that yes, following the way of Jesus will cost you something, but to not follow the way of Jesus costs you the most valuable things ever, like peace and hope and rest and true contentment. So if, as disciples, we're called to be sacrificial stewards rather than efficient consumers, and if we're called to organize our lives around God's agenda in Jesus and not our agenda, what should it look like to steward what we've been given in a way that displays the worthiness of Jesus? That's, that's what life is about, his worth, his value, and his glory. So how can we think about what we have as, as just a bunch of different tools to stoke the fire of the gospel? And this is gonna include some like cultural unlearning. We're blessed in order to bless, not to hoard blessing, but to share it. And we need to think about the ways that this should take shape in our lives. What should it look like to steward what we've been given in order to display the worthiness of Jesus, that's what we have to consider. And I actually think that we're in for a a fun and surprising answer this morning from John chapter 12. John will help us with our question this morning in John chapter 12, verses one through eight. That's our passage, John 12, one through eight. And I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. And after I read I'll say the word of God for the people of God, and I think it'd be really cool if wherever you are, you replied out loud with a simple thanks be to God uh, in gratitude for his word. So here we go. John chapter 12, verses one through eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Whoa, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, If you've been around Jesus for a while, you may remember this story right here. It's also included in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. And Bible nerds like to discuss how some of the details are different between Matthew and Mark and John. And if you want to explore that, then I suggest Don Carson's commentary on John to you. And in that discussion, it's important to remember that the first century writers, they didn't write and think like we do. They arranged their material according to theme and flow and not necessarily chronology and detail. 
For example, Jesus' feet get washed here in chapter 12 because he's getting ready to go wash the disciples' feet in chapter 13. Or simply put, I know that I have a big mouth and Sarah, my wife, has heard me tell the same stories time and time again, but in different ways when I'm telling them to different people for different reasons. And today what we're doing is we're just being concerned with how John tells the story. Why is John telling us this story? And what's he trying to teach us here about gospel and stewardship? So let's wade into some of the details of this. We're about a week away from Passover, as you can see in verse one. And his friends don't totally know it, but Jesus knows that he's not far from his own death. If you remember last week, he has just raised Lazarus, like Charlie talked about, and he is in Bethany, Lazarus's hometown. And because it's not every day that your brother becomes undead, in verse two, they have a special dinner party for Jesus, and they invite their family and their friends to kind of celebrate and thank Jesus. And it seems like uh, Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, are kind of being the hostesses for this dinner party. And if you notice, at the end of verse two, look right there, it says that they were reclining at the table together at the end of verse two. Now, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper painting is obviously a stunning and classical painting, but it's wrong for at least two reasons. Reason number one, nobody sits on just one side of the table. That is for college students who think that they are in love and they share a booth with nobody on the other side. I beg of you, please don't do that. And number two, Sorry, Leo, that's just not how they ate in the first century. That's not what it says. It says they were reclining or leaning. So they usually had short tables with thin mats, and they would lean over on their left elbows, and it probably looked a little bit like this. That's actually probably more what it looked like. Also, fun fact, the only single sliver or ounce of attempted humor that Mel Gibson tried in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that he had Jesus working in the wood shop, building tall tables and chairs like the ones that we use, and Mary jokingly says, ah, that'll never catch on. Why is that supposed to be funny? Because that's just not how they did it. They would have never thought of it, and that's what verse two says. <clears throat> now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it means that people's gross feet are a little bit closer to you and your gross feet are a little bit closer to them. And everybody wore sandals in that day, amen. And washing someone's feet because they were all gross was the lowest of lowest jobs for the lowest of lowest servants in a house. And so, as supper is coming to a close and they're making jokes and they're laughing at how terrible Lazarus smelled when he walked out of the grave a few days ago, Mary walks toward Jesus with the jar and everybody in the family knows about the jar. They've been saving it for a special occasion and the jar and its contents had a reputation. Look at verse three. <clears throat> Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. So yeah, this is disgusting. None of you with long hair would do this today and we even have this hot new technology called socks, right? <laughs> and however you take it, this is clearly an act of deep humility. She's acting as the lowest servant. Washing feet was a disgusting thing in the first century, but at the same time, somehow, it's also an act of deep devotion and adoration as well. well. Let's talk about this jar for one second. It says, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard 
What in the name of Ed Helms is that? Now, obviously this sent me on a delightful botany Googling spree this past week. Nard is the name of an aromatic oil for perfume and medicine, and it's taken from the root of the spikenard plant, which grows indigenously in the Himalayas, in Nepal, and China, and India. And I've got some pictures here for you. It's not native to Palestine at all. It was an import. It's never been. It's massive. It usually grows about three feet tall, and as you can tell, it has really plush uh, blossoms. It's also known for its dense floral smell. For thousands of years, it's been distilled kind of like into a thicker cream or a paste and then used for uh, medicinal or religious reasons in a lot of different ways. It was also considered a luxury of luxuries. Like in ancient Rome, <clears throat> it was even used to, to flavor their, their wines. And if you were wealthy, it was sometimes used at the burial of a loved one so that they would smell better for longer and that you can visit them more and it was a symbol of you committing them, your loved one, to your God. So why is Mary giving Jesus a pedicure with her hair with this stuff, right? Well, it's likely that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus came from a wealthier family and somehow the jar had been passed down to them for a special occasion. And here, here's just what I think, this is just my opinion, it doesn't say it, uh, I think they rarely uh, and only randomly thought about the jar until Lazarus had died a week or 10 days prior. And then they thought, oh, you know what? Let's use this for Lazarus's body. But then Jesus raised Lazarus so they didn't have to. And now that it's been on their minds, Mary thinks about it and goes to get it. And as an act of worship, she wipes Jesus's disgusting feet with it after supper. <clears throat> but it smells really, really good. I love candles. My favorite one is this like balsam candle from, from Trader Joe's and it just fills my whole house. But that's, that's like this times 10. It smells so good. The fragrance fills the whole house. Everybody's loving it. Everybody's enjoying it. That's verse three. But there's one person who is not enjoying it, our old pal Judas. And he says in verse five, why? What, what, what are we doing? How, how is this not sold and money given to the poor? Don't you know what that's worth? Hey, we have to be good stewards, am I right, Rabbi, up top? Like, that's what Judas is thinking about this whole thing. Now look in verse five. The jar and its contents are worth 300 denarii. Denarii has a footnote beside it, so look in the footnote in your Bible. Denarii is plural of a denarius, and a denarius is a day's wage, and 300 is the amount of days that someone was expected to work in a year, minus Sabbaths and holy days. So, that bottle of lotion costs, are you ready? An entire year's salary. That's the dumbest thing I have ever heard of. I don't care what shampoo you buy, what perfume you use, or what essential oil you like. If it's on sale for $35,000, I am on Team Judas all the way. Iscariot 2020, he's got my vote, okay? This is not financially efficient in any way. <clears throat> Jesus. Don't you remember all the stuff that you said about giving away your time and your money and your possessions for the poor and for others, right? But sadly, Judas wanted to do what seemed like a good thing for a bad reason. Look at verse six. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he used to help himself to the disciples' money bags as he carried them Around, I hope the other disciples used to call him Mr. Moneybags because that's just a funny thought in my mind. But after G, uh, Judas says all this stuff, <clears throat> Jesus 
immediately sticks up for Mary. Judas, Judas, leave her alone. That's what, that's what he says, leave her alone. And then he mysteriously mentions something about using it for his own burial. And just like it would have puzzled those around the table that night, Jesus talking about how this is for his own burial, it, it still puzzles, puzzles scholars today. It's a pretty strange Greek phrase. But what's not strange or vague is verse eight, Jesus offers justification for what Mary did. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. And what I love is that's just kind of how John leaves the episode. I, I love it when he does that. Like he, he wants us to think, he wants us to put pieces together. He's not gonna spoon feed it to us. And that's how the episode ends. You always have the poor with you, but not me. And then that's just kind of where the scene closes. <clears throat> so, how does this little story help us answer our question? Maybe you thought this was gonna be a sermon about getting rid of all your stuff because you have too much or about how we confuse our needs and our wants and we don't even know it and it, it still might be that a little bit, so just stay tuned. But there's another point that seems to be accented here Mary is giving her stuff away, and it seems kind of foolish to us. Like, we're low-key like Judas. Hey, I'm with you, man. Like, that, that's what we feel and think. It sure feels like Mary is confusing the relationship between task efficiency and people efficiency. And so that means we need to kind of synthesize and consider what's happening here. So let's do this. Let's step back and start to answer our question a little bit more broadly, and then we will move to some specifics. Again, what should it look like to steward what we've been given in order to display the worthiness of Jesus? That's what we're trying to think about. And to start broadly, I'll call on my good friend John Wesley. Maybe you've heard this one 250 years ago. He wrote, whenever I get money, I get rid of it as soon as I can, lest it find a way into my heart. Isn't that so scary and good? <clears throat> now, clearly, it's not wrong to have money and stuff, not at all. But it's absolutely wrong for money to have you. And money had Judas's heart. And so one of the first steps into Jesus honoring stewardship is to acknowledge that it's not yours, it can't have you, but rather it's all, no matter what it is, a gift from God. <clears throat> and it might seem kind of trivial to us, but Mary held this jar in an open palm and not a clenched fist. And so how much of what you have do you hold like that in an open palm? Or have those things moved from a clenched fist to inside your heart? And, and if they have, that, then your, your attempts at stewardship are gonna make a big deal of you and not Jesus. But this is what, not to do, don't let money find a way into your heart. So what should we positively do to be wise stewards that point to Jesus? <clears throat> well, followers of Jesus should regularly, regularly be giving away their time, their money, and their lives to the poor and less fortunate that they might experience God's provision and love. Now, I don't know your initial thought on that, maybe it's legalistic, or where'd you get that, Jim? But just hold on for a second, just listen. Followers of Jesus should be regularly, regularly giving away their time, their money, their resources, their lives to the poor and less fortunate that they might experience God's love and provision. This has nothing to do 
with earning God's love if you were thinking about it legalistically. This is a really natural and beautiful response to God's grace and love in the gospel. And also, if you think our passage is making the opposite point in some weird way, I'm not denying that, but look in verse eight. When Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, he's insinuating that the Christian norm should be loving and caring for the poor. God has always called his people to this. Some of the first instructions in Torah when they leave Mount Sinai are about this. Also in the early church for the first time, couple hundred years after Jesus, when something like a plague or a corona-like virus came through town or swept through a city, the rich people would up and leave so they wouldn't get it. But you know what the Christians would do? They would stay and they would risk their lives and they would love the poor and they would meet their needs until it passed. And we're called to do the same thing. Care for those who can't care for themselves. Serve at places in our city. Give to Miracle Hill. Ask if there are any needs in our church family. Find creative ways to use what God has given you to tangibly show his love to the poor and the outcasts and the lonely and the broken. And he didn't appropriate it rightly, but even G, uh, Judas knew that this was supposed to be the standard. So are you, are you doing that? Is that a category for you? Do you even consider that when you look at your budget? And, and if you already are, could you do more? Like a, a lot of us found a, a bonus few thousand dollars in the bank this week. How about rather than using it based on what we deem efficient in the moment, you take time and you just simply pray about where it should go. Like Jesus, Christians should be known for caring for the poor, but that's Rarely our reputation, and by God's grace, I love that we kind of want to change that in our thinking here at Fellowship Greenville, and we'd love for you to jump on board with us as we consider what that looks like. Now, to the strange accent in our story, what do we do with $35,000 lotion? What the heck, right? What do we do with it? Also, the strangeness of this is even highlighted for ancient readers, so we get to pretend like uh, we can feel all the fabric of the text right here. Uh, They're having supper in Bethany, uh, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus are from, and Bethany in Hebrew and Aramaic actually means house of the poor. So there's definitely an irony to what's going on here in this passage. So how do we think about this in view of our thinking on stewardship? Well, it seems like it highlights Jesus's supreme worth and value when his people occasionally go out of their way in deeds of overt, sacrificial extravagance. Now, you have to see that this is more than just the price tag on the ointment. In this scene, Mary is shameless in her worship. She's liberated from what other people think of her, She's risking the anger of her sister who is busy serving in the kitchen. She's putting her reputation on the line by letting down the trestles of her hair. That was scandalous in that day. That's what like loose women did in that culture. And then she used her hair as a towel for feet, all the while taking a year's salary and seemingly flushing it down the toilet. Again, overt, sacrificial extravagance, all to adore Jesus and thank Jesus and praise Jesus and love Jesus and delight in Jesus. This is a unique kind of gospel efficiency. Mary is generously using what she has been given for Jesus and his glory to 
put him on display and make a big deal of him. Such a big deal that when Matthew and Mark tell this story, they say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, which is unbelievable. So, are you ever this shameless or this generous in your worship of Jesus? Do you ever lavishly leverage what you've been given for Jesus's sake? So the next time somebody asks you for, hey, can you give me 25 bucks or 50 bucks for my, my, my mission trip or my outreach trip? What if you just said, hey, let me pray about that. And then you paid the whole thing off. What if your small group adopted one of our missionary families and every year you guys went out of your way to provide for them and support them and you took care of all of their Christmas and stuff like that? What if you yourself went and served with one of our partners, local or global, knowing that it doesn't feel time efficient or financially efficient and maybe if you could, you paid for your whole team to go. I know that this will look different for different people but as followers of Jesus, please hear this. As followers of Jesus, there should be clear points in our calendars and in our bank statements where it just doesn't make sense to a watching world. It doesn't. It might even seem reckless, but in reality, it's a step of massive faith to put the spotlight on Jesus. Is that ever the case in your life where you adore Jesus like Mary is doing here? Is that ever the case for you? Extravagance like that. Paul tells Timothy, command the rich. Command, that, that feels pretty heavy and straightforward. Command the rich in this present age not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And these kinds of thoughts are going to help us finish, answer, uh, finish answering our question. So <clears throat> according to our story in John 12, Paul's words here in 1 Timothy 6, and the entire biblical witness, we can say the following. The truest test of Christian stewardship is not in what you have, consume, or acquire, but in what and how you give away in order to worship and reflect Jesus. Let that sink in one more time. Every single part of this matters. The truest test of Christian stewardship is not in what you have, consume, or acquire, but in what and how you give away in order to make a big deal of and worship and reflect Jesus. We've said it, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this. There's not, and so that's why we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be dependent upon him to guide us and lead us and show us what it looks like to live in this. We have to pray about time and money and not just use them, right? That's what we have been taught to subliminally do in our Western world. Just use your resources. But what about if we use them for a greater purpose than just ours? And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us think about what these things look like. And this last idea is crucial. Doing all of this for Jesus. <clears throat> John hints at this in the most subtle ways in this passage. The word for dinner 
in verse two right there. The only other time that's used is for the, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper, the Last Dinner in the next chapter. The feet washing, the only other time that feet washing happens is the night that Jesus is arrested before he goes to the cross. And the pound of ointment, the only other time that language is used is when Nicodemus actually goes and anoints Jesus's body at his actual burial in chapter 19. And, and John is doing this on purpose. This text is forward looking to Jesus in the gospel, Jesus in his death and resurrection. <clears throat> Even Jesus saw what Mary did is a kind of cryptic anointing. And the two primary ways in which you anointed someone back then were when they died and when they became king. And we know that these aren't two different things for Jesus. We know that his death was his enthronement. We know that he's the king, that he wore a crown of thorns, that the sign above him said, King of the Jews. <clears throat> and we know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. And that's about the cross. The single act of overt, sacrificial extravagance that saves all who trust him. And guess what? That doesn't naturally make sense to us. But here's what we have to see in all of this. Jesus is not calling us into any kind of life except the one that he has already lived as an example before us. We are called to do these things for Jesus because he has done them for us first. This is the absolute bedrock and foundation and aim and goal of true Christian stewardship. We give our lives away for others because that's what he did for us to make kingdom come and new creation spring forth. And now our job is to do the same and we do it by, John's whole point, by believing, by swearing allegiance to Jesus as king. You're not the king, I'm not the king, he is. And by trusting that this, this kind of extravagance, this kind of stewardship is the real way to live. Worshiping and reflecting Jesus because he's that worthy. Fellowship Greenville, we better be really, really thankful that God doesn't use our definitions of efficiency because if that were the case, none of us deserve his love. And so now let us live with our time, our money, our resources, and our energy in an open palm and not a clenched fist because that's exactly how Jesus held onto his own life and he gave it up for us. And that is our gospel today. And I hope that you love Jesus for it, for that good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are infinitely worthy. You are infinitely valuable. You are the greatest treasure of all, above all of our stuff, above all of our money, above all of our resources, above it all, you are good and loving. And so Holy Spirit, may we learn how to be good stewards of life and use what we have, what you have given us, <clears throat> use it all, 
to draw people's attention to Jesus because he is so worthy and good. Please, Spirit, creatively and sacrificially teach us what that looks like for our lives so that people will see how awesome and great and wonderful and good Jesus is, that he's better than all of the things that we hold on to so tightly. Please, Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.